Take that Bible and open it to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, as we come here in these closing weeks to to his closing argument. James chapter 5, and we come to that statement in chapter 5 and in verse 12, and it's kind of a new section and a new paragraph with the closing thoughts, and I thought we would just focus our time here this morning. It's this in James 5.12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Very, very clear, penetratable word to our hearts that we need to hear this morning. I mean, there's no question about it. This man, as we reflect back, was greatly used by God. He had qualities, great qualities as a young man. He was gifted. He was talented. He was a leader of leaders, and he really had a knack for making profound statements. His speech was greatly used by God. I think it would easily be fair to say that he preached some of the finest sermons ever recorded in the history of the church. And yet on one night, in the flash of a moment, he would weep bitterly over words that would come from his mouth. I am talking about the Apostle Peter. He uttered that profound statement. Remember in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yet on a dark night in which Jesus was betrayed, as the disciples fled from him, as Jesus was being hideously slapped and beaten and spit upon, the gospel tells us this, that Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a certain girl came up to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you are talking about. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, the Bible says that he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And then a little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you are one of them for the way that you talk gives gives you away. And then the Bible says that he began to curse and swear and say, I do not know the man. And as soon as he finished that sentence, the cock crowed and Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And the Bible is extremely clear that he went out and he had wept bitterly. I mean, it's amazing, is it not? He goes from, thou art the son of the living God, to he began to curse and swear. And earlier in the gospel, he went and said this to the Lord, that even if I have to die, die, he said, I will not deny you, to he began to curse and swear. I think you would agree that the tongue is a powerful tool, and it can be used properly, and when it's used properly, we can Praise God as we've done this morning. We can pray to God as we've done. 
We can teach from the scriptures. We can encourage one another. We can evangelize the lost. We can sing and worship. And yet with that same tongue, we can assassinate fellow believers. We can slice and dice someone's character into pieces. We can speak evil words. We can gossip. We can slander another. I mean, it's a frightening thing when you look in the Scripture. You think about what the Lord says about the tongue and specifically what He says about the lying tongue. The Scripture says this in Proverbs 6.16. It says that He hates a lying tongue. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 12, 22, it says there that lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Quite graphic words, aren't they? He hates a lying tongue and lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 26, 18 says this, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I am only joking. Proverbs 26, 18. Proverbs 12, 19 says that truthful lips will be established forever, but the lying tongue is only for a moment. Scripture after Scripture records passages that deal with our speech and deal with the truthfulness of it, or we could say the falsehood of it. Proverbs 19, 5 says, A false witness will not go unpunished, And he who tells lies will not escape. In fact, it's so clear that Proverbs says in 19.22 that it is better to be a poor man than to be a liar. So the scripture talks about this all the time. In fact, in a frightening statement in the book book of Revelation, in 21.8, it says that the destiny of liars is the lake of fire. It says the same thing in Proverbs 20, excuse me, in Revelation 21, 15. Those who love and practice falsehood will be cast into eternal punishments. Lord says a lot about the tongue, doesn't he? John MacArthur on the lying tongue said this. He said, fallen men are basically inveterate liars. He said, children lie to their parents and parents lie to their children. Husbands lie to their wives and wives lie to their husbands. Politicians lie to get elected and continue to lie once they are in office. Educators lie, scientists lie, members of the media lie. And he went on to say that our society is built on such a network of falsehood, lies, and half-truths that if the truth were to be made known and revealed, our entire society would disintegrate because the truth itself would lead to utter chaos and ruin. End of quote. I mean, there was a time, was there not, when in our Western culture, it was distinguished from other cultures by the simple trait that we could tell the truth. But I think now, lying is such a part of our culture that even our most sacred vows mean nothing. When you think about perjury under oath in the courts, it's epidemic. I mean, when people stand up and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me, what? God. But that stuff's violated all the time. The vows of marriage are broken almost as frequently as they are pledged. I mean, there is a crisis in truth in our nation and even in our churches. George MacDonald, the famous great writer, candidly wrote this to his father on December 6, 1878. He said, quote, I always try, I think I do, 
to be truthful. And then he said all at the same time, I tell a great many lies. And he was honest with it. Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament in Acts chapter 5 said one thing and did another thing. And so James comes back to us again in 5.12 and he addresses the issue of the tongue, specifically in truth-telling. Now, as you followed this argument in James, this is not surprising. Go back to chapter 1 just for a moment. He's been addressing the tongue and no wonder he says, but above all, He says, do not swear in 5.12, but he's been talking about the tongue. Do you remember this statement in James chapter 1, verse 19, where he said, know this, my beloved brothers. He said, let everyone be quick to hear. And here's the key, slow to speak and slow to anger. He told us in the context of trials, and I think particularly on a vertical relationship with God, be very careful here in 119 to be slow to speak look down in your bible you remember this at james 126 if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart this person's religion is what worthless i mean you can think you're religious you can think you're pure and undefiled before god and so forth But if you can't bridle that tongue, then your religion is not worth anything. And so he instructed us from the very beginning, we need to be careful of our words. Look down in James chapter 2. Remember that whole section on partiality about judging those by outward appearance. And he said in 2.12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. In other words, conduct your actions and here at the beginning of 2.12, speak as those who will be judged under that law of liberty. You remember if you go over to chapter 3 and verse 2 where he said there, we all stumble in many ways and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, a mature man, able to bridle his whole body. In other words, if you control your tongue, you control your body and the control of the tongue is the effect of a man who's mature and a woman who's mature. But you remember, if you glance down at verse 7 of chapter 3, every beast and uh, and bird and reptile and sea creature in 3-7 can be tamed and has been tamed by humankind. But verse 8 says, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. It is full of deadly poison. And James went on to say in 3-9 that with it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who have been made in the image of God. And he said, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be this way. So as we've walked through this epistle, he's warned us about the danger of the tongue. In fact, go over to chapter 4. Remember there in verse 11, where he just very clearly said, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And he warned us about judging one another in the body of Christ. And now we come this morning to chapter 5 and verse 12 to another statement on the tongue. And look at it again. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other under other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. 
Now, you'll notice we walk into the text. He says, but above all, my brothers. Now, there's some question amongst some scholars as we head into this place. We just finished that whole section on patience and endurance in 5 through 11. And there's some scholars who think that 512 is a continuation of that thought. That as you're being persecuted and you're under trial, the need for patience, the need for endurance, and when you're under trial, the need here to be careful about taking oaths when you are stressed. And I'm, I think there, there could be reasoning that way. But I think it's best to understand 512 and best to understand that phrase there, but above all, my brothers, as it marking the closing, if you will, or marking, excuse me, the beginning of the closing section of his entire letter here. I don't think he's looking back. I think he's going forward. And what he does is he goes forward in 512, as you can see, down through verse 20 is he's going to bring up three crucial issues in the life of this community. And so there are three crucial issues for us in the life of our church. He's going to warn us first in our text this morning. He's going to exhort us against foolish oath taking in 512. And then next week and in the, in the week after that, he's going to exhort us to pray. Remember that passage, a very interesting passage in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the whole section's about prayer. So he exhorts us against foolish oath-taking. Then he exhorts us against all kinds of prayer. And then when you get to chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, James is going to exhort us how to confront sin in people. In fact, look at verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of of sins. And I've already begun to think about that passage. So this morning, we're going to deal here with his exhortation against false oath-taking. Then the next week, the 13th and 20th, we're going to deal with his exhortation to pray in all occasions. And then on July 27th, we're going to finish the epistle when he exhorts us to confront one another in sin. In fact, I would think that as we look at 5, 19, and 20, most people have cut that out of the Bible. Because I think you know a lot of people who are wandering aimlessly after confessing Christ. And what do you do in that particular situation? Now, interestingly, each of these three issues, fair, oath-taking, prayer, and confronting a brother or sister in sin, all involve speech is the key in other words here he's talking about speaking to people in 512 then in 13 through 18 he's talking about speaking and praying to god and then when you get to 519 and 20 he's talking about speaking to a sinning brother or sister So once again, as it says there on your notes, we come here to that final section in James, there in your notes, that our faith is tested 
if you will, in our truthfulness, in our speech, our prayer to God, and our confrontation with other brothers and sisters. Now here this morning, I've titled this one, A Call to Radical Truthfulness, okay? A call to radical, or a call to speak truthfully, okay? Now there are three keys, just looking at 512 this morning, to understanding this radical call to speak truthfully. And I want to walk through that with you this morning, okay? First, I want you to understand the historical context. What is James talking about here when he says that phrase, do not swear? So let's look at that historical context. Now, as you zero in on the text there in verse 12, when he says do not swear, don't think that, you know, James is talking about profanity here. He is not. There's another word for profanity in the New Testament. If you were to think that he's talking about swearing as we would commonly think about it, that's not what James is addressing here. This is a very unique word. Again, profanity is used and prohibited in other passages. James is using the word here, okay, to speak of taking an oath before God, of making a binding commitment before God. He's talking about here in this context, as you will see, using God's name to guarantee the truthfulness of what you are saying, okay? And I'll get into that in just a moment. But remember, just as you think of this historical context, at this time, contracts were not so much in place. So they had oaths that served as binding agreements between parties and God. And what these oaths did and what these covenants were is they called God as a witness to the promise that was being made. Now, when you look here in 512, he says, do not swear, okay? And I want you to understand here, just before we get going, the Bible does not forbid taking oaths, okay? In fact, I could keep you here for weeks on biblical oath-taking, which I won't. But the Bible taught that the making of an oath, many of the, the men of God took oaths. In fact, when you go back to Genesis chapter 14, Genesis chapter 21, Abraham confirmed his promises to the king of Sodom, Genesis 14, to the king that was titled Abimelech in Genesis 21, and he confirmed those promises with oaths in the name of God. So Abraham took oaths. In fact, Abraham, do you remember, you don't have to turn there, in Genesis 24, when he made his servant, Eleazar, swear by the Lord that he would not take a wife for Isaac from the Canaanites. He made him swear. He made him take an oath. I'm calling you to an oath, Eleazar. Do not let my son, Isaac, take a wife from the Canaanites. And you remember he went off and secured a righteous wife for Isaac at that point. Then you get into Genesis 31. Jacob and Laban called on God as their witness when they made a covenant with each other at Mizpah. Genesis 31. These, these oaths are all over the scriptures. In fact, Rahab um, asked for an oath when the two spies came that she said, make a covenant with me, make an oath with me, that if I hide you, 
you will spare me. And so an oath was taken and they made an oath with her and they kept that oath because when they came into that place, you remember they spared her with the scarlet cord that was over the wall. David and Jonathan, 1 Samuel chapter 20, made an oath when they coveted together. They swore, if you will, you see, that's the word, in the name of God. You think of the Nazarites. They took an oath to set them apart in Numbers chapter 6. And a host of other oaths were taken. In fact, when you get to the New Testament, in Acts chapter 18, verse 18, Paul made an oath to God. But what's even more than that is that God himself made an oath. It says in the book of Hebrews in 6.16, when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, it says in, it says in Hebrews 6.13, excuse me, that God swore by himself. In other words, he couldn't trust man, so he made that covenant by himself. And in Hebrews 6.17, he confirmed it with an oath. These oaths are all over the scripture. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 1.23, Paul said there, I call God to witness against me. He says it was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. And so he called God as a witness. And this, the taking of these oaths was very serious business. Now you'll also be reminded that some oaths were hasty. Some oaths were utterly foolish. In fact, when you get back and you start reading the Old Testament, you find several examples of people who foolishly took rash vows. I'm thinking of the Israelites where they were deceived, you remember, by the Hivites and their leaders swore an oath in Joshua chapter 9 to let them live, only to discover that they were one of the peoples that Israel was supposed to to destroy, but they took an oath. It was a rash oath. It was a false oath, and they took it rashly, and they paid the consequences for it. So vows were taken, but some were taken rashly. I'm thinking of King Saul when he made a hasty vow in 1 Kings 14 when he said that his army should not eat anything. And remember, Jonathan didn't hear Saul say that, and he was out in battle, and he ate some honey, and he was supposed to kill him because he took it. It was just a foolish, rash vow. I think the most, inf the most famous in the sad way, infamous rash vow, is that of John the Baptist when Herod's foolish vow cost John the Baptist his life. Or you think of Jephthah's vow. His vow cost his the life of his one and only child, his daughter, because she came out of the house. And so you see these different usages here. Vows were taken, oaths were taken, but some were taken rashly. So when you get to this passage here in James chapter 5, what's the issue here? What's he getting at when he says, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath? I think Barclay in his commentary is right on. He, in this context, noted two major problems. The first was what he called frivolous swearing okay and what was that it was taking an oath where no oath was even necessary okay i mean it was common in biblical times to introduce a statement by saying by thy life or by my head 
Or may I never see the comfort of Israel if. And they took these kind of oaths all the time. He called that frivolous swearing. But then there was a second problem in biblical times. There's what he called evasive swearing. And what the Jewish people did is they begin to divide the oaths in two classes. Some of those oaths they considered binding. And, uh, and then there were those oaths on the other side which were not. And any oath which contained the name of God was binding to a Jewish person. And any oath which did not use the name of God was not binding. For example, in the Jewish writing, they have a, 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 a writing called the Mishnah. And in that Mishnah, they had a whole track that was devoted to the subject of oaths. And some rabbis taught that an oath was binding, again, as I said, only if God's name was evoked. So if they took an oath, and that oath was made by Shaddai, this is out of the Mishnah, or by Sabaoth, or if you took an oath and you put this name on the merciful and gracious, it would be binding. But if you took an oath and it was only made by heaven and earth, it was less binding. And the result was, here in biblical times, if a man swore by the name of God, he would rigidly keep that oath. But if he swore by heaven and by earth or by Jerusalem, he felt very free to break that oath. And so this type of reasoning produced kind of what one man called a moral schizophrenia. In other words, I'm really not lying, but I'm not telling you the truth. It was like the children say, when we were growing up, I had my fingers, what? Crossed. I really didn't mean it. And that's how they got into these hair-splitting distinctions, if you will. So that's the historical context in which this argument comes to us. But let me move you secondly to the commands. What does, what does James say here? Well, look, by, look at the text. He gives a negative command, and then he gives a positive command. He says, but above all, my brothers... He says here negatively, do not swear either by heaven or earth or by any other oath. And so he gives this negative command to stop this. And it's put in the present tense. And you get the idea that this was going on. Very early New Testament book. And they kind of carried over their Jewish traditions. And here James, by the authority of the scripture, says to stop this. In other words, make no oath at all. Now, just for a little footnote, some have understood this negative command so as to never give an oath in the courtroom. The Anabaptists believe that, so they would never take an oath. The Moravians believe that. The Quakers sometimes believe that. But that's not the intent of this passage. What does that negative command mean? Let me see if I can highlight it for you by two other scriptures. Go over in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Will you do that just for a moment? You'll see here that this is not new to James. James is building off our Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember this phrasing there? Matthew chapter 5 in verse 33. Okay, there as he's in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's giving what you've heard said, but what the truth is. Look at this in 533. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, 
either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make your hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And so there Jesus debunked the practice of their day where some would swear by their heads, some by Jerusalem. But if you called out the big guns and you used the name of God, that was serious. And our Lord warns against this. Look over at Matthew chapter 23. There's one more example. He gave this to the Pharisees. We're just building a platform for this and then we'll apply it to our own life. Remember, he said this to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 in verse 16. And you can see that our Lord was quite to the point here with those false religious leaders. He said in 23, 16, woe to you blind guides who say this. If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by this oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, he said, hypocrites. In other words, he basically says there, everything is God. Everything is God's. He made the heavens. He made the earth. He made Jerusalem. Your head is God and so forth, okay? Let me see if I could just bring it down home. To your wife, you say, I mean, this is about how silly it is. You say to your wife, I promise to fix the bathroom by the weekend. I swear by the temple, I will do it. But Saturday comes and your golf buddy uh, calls and you go. And you lose the day, and your wife reminds you of your promise, but you let her know that your promise was not binding because you didn't swear by the gold of the temple. You see the frivolous technicalities that manipulated any conversation to basically tell a boldface lie. Or someone calls you, let's say a creditor calls you, he calls you this week, and uh, he asks you a question, and you put him off, okay? Or you're talking to someone after church and you say to someone, let's get together. Yes, let's do it. And you say, I swear by the altar, I will call you. And when the week passes, your friend wonders what happened. And he reminds you that you promised to call. And you reply this, yes, I did. But I swore by the altar, not on the offering of the altar. So I didn't call you. In fact, I never intended to call you. I mean, this is what was happening. And so Jesus condemned them for these hair-splitting distinctions between binding and non-binding oaths. Now, let me just clarify this for you. 
I don't think he's not saying that, it, I don't think he's saying it's wrong to take an oath. I don't think he's saying even it's wrong to testify in court. Certainly when you stood before your spouse and you said, I do promise and covenant before God and these what? Witnesses, you were taking an oath. I don't think it's wrong to say your vows at a wedding. Here's the point. It comes back out of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 23. It says this in verse 21. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it, be, it would be sin to you. The Lord your God will surely require it of you. I think just there, as you look back in Deuteronomy 23, 21, if you make a vow, then keep your vow, is the point. I'm thinking of the scripture in Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, where it says, if a man makes a vow to the Lord, he shall not violate his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So James here comes to us as we get to the close, and he says, listen, here's a command. And here's a negative command, if you will, because it's a pro- prohibition, right, that he, he gives. He says, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, if you're not intending to keep it. And I think that's why our Lord said in Matthew 5, 34, I say to you, make no oath at all. So oaths, if you look at the big picture, were taken. They were even encouraged. However, oaths were wrong when they were misused with the intent to deceive others, or when oaths were given, rashly taken, or even flippantly given, and you never intended to follow them up. So that's the negative command. But look again back at the text. There's a positive command here. It's very clear. He says, but let your yes be yes, and your no, what? No. He's just given a plea here for total honesty with the tongue. And the principle here is this. If you are a believer, then you won't need an oath, if you will, to tell the truth. Your word should be truth with nothing attached to it. In other words, the formula you recite is irrelevant It is an artificial substitute for truth in your conduct and in your speech. I think Jesus would say, forget the formula and fight to tell the truth. And so it's a plea for total honesty with the tongue, okay? In other words, he says, stop playing games. Be forthright in what you say. Be honest. Yes means yes, and no means no. In other words, for us, Keep your word. That's the thought here. In other words, James is just saying, listen, if you have integrity, there's no need for oaths to convince others about your word. Your word, you can finish the statement, should be as good as what? Gold, okay? It should be good as gold. And so here's the historical context. Here's a negative command given. Here's a positive command given. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. And then look at the conclusion that is drawn there in verse 12. He says there, so that, and he gives the purpose clause here. I just call it the conclusion drawn, that you may not fall under condemnation or that you may not fall under judgment. And I think you've seen that in other passages in James chapter 2, verse 12, 
James chapter 4, verse 11, James chapter 5, verse 9, we're going to give an account of our life. Now, we know that that's not the great white throne judgment, the judgment for the unbeliever, but you and I will give an account for our life. We will give an account for our words. And so James is just saying to us, and he's so tender, because look again at verse 12. You'll note this. He says, above all, my brothers. And he lots himself in with us. And there's a tenderness to James. And he says, you will fall under judgment or fall under condemnation. If you are not careful, you will have to give an account for words that are rashly and flippantly spoken. So here's the question. What can we do to speak the truth? That's the issue here. What can we do to speak the truth in this section for our own life? I think the answer is pretty simple. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Okay, and there's a number of things that I suppose I could say, and maybe I could have put this up at the front. I was just thinking of how we do this in our own day, and I think Austin alluded to it on Wednesday. We grew up maybe sometimes saying the statement, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle, what? In my eye. And why do we say that? We say that because maybe we think sometimes we don't tell the truth, but on this one, we're telling the truth. So we say, cross my heart, right? We give that whole line, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Or the one now that people use today, the little kids use it today, I even embarrassingly say sometimes I did it with my twins when we grew up, is this one. Can we pinky what? Swear. And then you kind of lock pinkies, right? And that's a way that you kind of say, hey, this is serious. Let's pinky swear. And so we have our own little system of of applying this stuff. And there's more. Sometimes I've heard this one. And maybe you've said this one. I swear to God I'm not, what, lying. In other words, some other times maybe we are. But on this one, I'm not. So I swear to God that I'm not lying. And there's that word that when he says, do not swear, he's not talking about profanity. He's talking about calling on God as a witness. And so we say sometimes, I swear to God, I'm not lying. Or how many times did I hear this one growing up? I'm really serious. I put my hand, what? On the Bible. Give me a stack of Bibles and let me affirm this before you. Or I've heard people say, quote, before God, I will do this, okay? And so we call on God as witness. Or I've heard people say, as God is my witness, this will never happen. And so we've come up with our own system. Or I'm not even sure what this one means when people say, I swear, boy scouts, what? Honor. I'm not even sure what that means anymore, according to the boy scouts, But that's a phrase that goes out. In other words, sometimes we don't speak the truth. But on this one, Boy Scouts honor, I'm going to speak the truth. Or I've heard people say, on my mother's grave. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da, right? Or God is my witness. Da-da-da-da-da, you know? Or I've heard this one. And, and I just, I look into my own heart. I'm just thinking, James is saying to us, by the Spirit of God, if your faith is real, you don't need to call the big guns out, Okay? Your word should be gold. It should be counted on. I mean, whatever happened to the gentleman's handshake? 
In, in fact, sometimes it's very easy in conversation when we say to somebody, it may just be you and one other person. Let me be utterly, what? Honest with you. I mean, I haven't been honest up to this point, but I really want to be honest right now at this point, as though previously we're, we were not honest. Or sometimes I hear this phrase, let me shoot straight with you. Because before what I said was a little crooked. I, I don't know what that means, right? Let me shoot straight with you. In fact, one theologian said this, whenever I say, I swear to God, I am really saying that now I'm going to mark off an area of absolute truth and put walls around it to cut it off from untruthfulness. He says that ordinarily overruns my speech. He said, I am saying even more than this. I am saying that people are expecting me to lie from the start and just because they are counting on my line, I have to bring up these big guns of oaths and words of honor. End of quote. Listen, I, I mean, what would our church be like if we just spoke truth to one another? What would our homes be like if there was no duplicity there? What would our businesses be like if our word was our bond? See, so James says, listen, this is a test of faith. This is a radical call to truthfulness. And as he closes his book out, as he talks about this oath-taking, a foolish oath-taking, he's gonna lead us back into prayer. Then he's gonna lead us into confronting one another. But listen, what about marriage vows, you young people, okay? You're going to stand up and say, I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be thy loving and faithful husband. I know, we could do a wedding right now, today, okay? I promise in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, till death do us, what? Part, so help me God, we sometimes say. Listen, when marriage vows mean something, business contracts mean something, your work hours mean something, your taxes and your signature mean something. Listen, we should tell the truth in our church. We should tell the truth in our home. We should tell the truth in our business. We should tell the truth to our coach. We should tell the truth to our grandparents. We should tell the truth and babies to babysitters and so forth. You should tell the truth on your resume, right? Well, that's a big problem in athletics now. Well, so-and-so, the great institution, Notre Dame, hired a coach a few years back only to find out that he was deceptive on his resume and he was in the job one day and in 24 hours he was out of the job because he said he graduated from such and such an institution and he never graduated from such and such an institution. So when you're writing your resume, don't try to pat it. Try to make it be truthful, okay? And when you make your vows in a wedding, you keep those vows. One author put it this way. He said, you can tell lies while justifying yourself that you are really telling the truth. He said, we often refer to these as white lies. Don't we? I've heard that. They are called white in the sense that they seem pure and clean and honest, yet they are called lies because this is what they really are. They're white lies. For example, the mom says, did you take a cookie? And this is really for the adults, though, okay? Did you take a cookie from the cookie jar? And the child replies, no, and is confident that she is telling the truth. Of course, no boys would do this. It's a little girl, and she's confident she's telling the truth, okay? And the truth of the matter is that the child didn't take a cookie from the cookie jar. The child took several cookies from the cookie jar and not a single cookie from the jar. 
So when mom asked, did you take a cookie from the cookie jar? The child could reply, no, because she took several cookies. So you could begin to justify all these lies all the same time while you're telling a lie. Or a creditor calls you acquiring about an account and you say the check is in the mail. But when you said this, you were actually referring to another check, not the one the creditor was asking about. Okay? And so you've been able to tell the truth, but in doing so, you've been able to communicate a lie. And I'll tell you, our, our society lives on a fabric of this kind of falsehood, if you will. So James just comes by the Spirit of God. He says, listen, Grace Church, tell the truth. And listen, I say to you, young people, tell the truth. And be careful about hanging about people who are always lying. Because they'll lie themselves right into trouble a thousand times over. Listen, let me say it this way. Mean what you say and say what you mean. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. And yes should be yes without reservation, without capitulation, and without hesitation. Okay? That's what it means. So here we have it, a radical call to truthfulness in our home, in our church, in our business, where truthfulness must be lived out and kept. And may God give us grace to follow in accord with that. Listen, truth, one man said, has no degrees or shades. A half-truth is a whole lie. And a white lie is a big black lie. And God has, has never had any standard lower than absolute truthfulness. And that ought to be what ought to mark our life. Amen? So may God give us the spirit to obey that word.